Thank you. It is a privilege to be here. I have really enjoyed getting to know your pastor, Paul. Pastors love other pastors. There's just something about that. Um, Because we're supposed to be like the great shepherd, Jesus himself. But then you meet some pastors who, who obviously love their people. And I could tell from the start that was true of Paul as he was talking about you all. And now being here and seeing this community, uh, I see it in sharp relief. So it's really a privilege for me to be with you. And um, this morning I would like for us to um, consider life and death. If we were to get together, let's say uh, you brought me to your, your favorite restaurant or diner or coffee shop and we were to chat a little about your hopes and fears and dreams, um, I wonder what we would talk about. I wonder what you would like to share. It's remarkable how open people become, sometimes when you don't know them very well, in sharing what's on their heart. And in my experience, as I've sat down with friends, I'd very often do this when I was a pastor at College Church. I'd call up a member and say, hey, you know, let's go grab a coffee. I just want to hear what God's doing in your life. And we would start the conversation. And within a few short minutes, that person would begin to disclose rather personal things. And more times than not, they would talk about their fears. They would talk about those things that keep them up at night, that come to their mind immediately when they awake in the morning. And I can recognize in my own life that increasingly I find myself preoccupied with anxiety and worry and stress. They say you hit midlife crisis as a man at 41 and a half. Not 41 or not 42. I'm 41 and a half right now, exactly. I don't know whether I am in fact going through midlife crisis, but I will tell you that increasingly I have these thoughts. I look at my four young children and I wonder, what will life be like for them here in America 20 years forward? Um, What sorts of challenges are they going to face? And then I recognize that I have virtually no control whatsoever over that, over what they experience. And you know, you can whip yourself up into a nervous frenzy really fast you begin to ask those questions and think those thoughts. And so whether it is for yourself or whether it is for a loved one, that child uh, whom you've raised who's now an adult and is perhaps not walking with Jesus and you're burdened and you're praying for him or for her and you want nothing more than to see that child walking in the light of Christ, where do you go What can you possibly do when you're in that situation? This is the answer I would like for us to consider. And for the answer, we'll look at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Isaiah chapter 6, this passage addresses, speaks to us at the level of our calling in life, our purpose in life. We're all searching for purpose. It also speaks to us with reference to our fears. 
I don't know about you, but I can sometimes relate to the philosopher who once said, my life has been full of terrible misfortune, most of which has never happened. You know, you, you begin to ponder the things about which you worry, and pretty soon it becomes a lens through which you see all of life. Right? It, it, it constitutes your mental framework. And what we're going to see is that this was a challenge before Isaiah because something significant happened in his lifetime and we read about it in verse 1. Isaiah 6, 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. Now let me pause there for a moment and just note that this reference to Uzziah is important. That King Uzziah was a faithful king throughout his life. That during his 50 or so years of reigning, the nation enjoyed relative peace and prosperity and was for the most part faithful to Yahweh, her Lord. But something happened at his death. The nation turned a corner and began to decline spiritually. Under the leadership of the, the subs, uh, successive king, Jotham, and then even more under Ahaz, you found the leaders of Israel turning their backs on God. And with the light of God's presence behind them, they proceeded to walk in the darkness of their own shadow. And there in the shadow of Israel, in her self-centered living, without concern for the Lord, all of life proceeded to fall apart economically, socially, and most of all, religiously. All the blessings that God had promised to his, faith, to his people for their faithfulness, Deuteronomy 28-32, through 32, that he will give them peace, that he'll give them victory over enemies, that they will enjoy his presence most of all. These promises began to unwind, and increasingly, Israel became a place characterized by darkness and by despair and fear. And it was into this very setting that Isaiah was called to be a spokesperson for God, to represent God as a prophet, to say to the people, look, you are the chosen people. God bore you out of Egypt on eagle's wings to himself, and he gave you his word, and he called you to shine as a light for the world, right here in, in this land, in this cross-section of east and west. And you are a privileged people. And God has said to you that obeying me will result in blessing. You will have divine presence and you will see the nations coming to the light of God. However, Israel, you're failing to obey. You're going your own way. And so the message of the prophets is one of repentance. And it's um, very much so for Isaiah. Calling the people to turn from their sins and, and return to this place of honest devotion to the Lord. But it was a daunting task because as the society grew increasingly dark and people's hearts became harder, their receptivity to this message would have decreased. Their willingness to listen would have uh, been something that Isaiah would have had to work very hard at. And so there he is, being called by God to approach this people 
who have hard hearts and who are disinterested in hearing what he says. How will Isaiah confront this challenge? This is, I believe, the reason why God gives to him a vision, a vision that we will look at in the subsequent verses. Isaiah needed to have his vision elevated above the horizon of people, of Israel, of his fear, and recognize that standing above all of this was God himself. And so in these first four verses, God gives to Isaiah a portrait. Think of it, if you will, like a a canvas on which the Spirit lays down these brushstrokes to portray who God is in his strength and his his wonder. So we read in verse 1, In this year when King Uzziah died, Isaiah has this vision. He saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Let me pause there. This this language of God's robe is something that's foreign to us, but it would have made a great deal of sense in Isaiah's day because then the length of one's robe was an indicator of the authority and majesty, majesty uh, of a particular king. If you were the ruler of a small nation, you would be seen wearing a modest-sized robe. On the other hand, if you were the king of Israel or Tyre or Sidon, some of these, these great nations, kings of those places would have robes that were exceedingly long, intricately designed, as an indication that this is a great king. Well, notice what it says of God's robe. It didn't simply reach down to his feet or cover the throne on which he was seated, but in a rather exaggerated way, it says that this this robe, this train, fills the entire throne room. It's It's a statement about the extent of the power that this king possesses. Above him, verse 2, there are seraphim, each with six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. This is the only place in Scripture where we read about these creatures, these so-called seraph angels. And with three sets of wings, they first cover their eyes. Presumably the, the light of God emanating from his being is so bright, is so brilliant that they can't look directly upon it. With the second set of wings, they cover their feet as a, as a gesture of modesty and humility, recognizing that they are the creation standing before the Almighty Creator. And then finally, with the third set of wings, they fly, always ready to go forth in service of this great God. And they're singing. Verse 3 calling out one to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. I'm envisioning angels that are on each side of the throne room, and they're singing back and forth antiphonally uh, of God's holiness. And the the whole throne room is filled with this sound, and it's building into a, a crescendo. And they point out the fact that it is the 
the whole earth that sees this glory, that the scope of God's splendor is such that it extends around the globe. Let me point out that this notion of a God who reigns over all things was completely foreign to Isaiah's day. I mean, we, we hear that language and we recognize it as familiar because we've had 2,000 years of Christian creeds which have said as much. But in Isaiah's day, remember, you had gods reigning in local geographic areas. So there was the God of Egypt and the God of the Ammonites and the Moabites. And they were believed to exercise a certain amount of, a, of influence in their region. But there was no expectation that they would be able to transcend that geographic location. Not so for the God of Israel. Israel's God exercises his authority and, and power in such a way that it transcends these boundaries and extends to the entire globe. Verse 4, the foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Even inanimate objects like doorposts, when confronted with the, the stunning power of God seated on his throne, surrounded by these angels who are singing of his holiness, have enough sense to tremble and shake and realize that there is something that defies description that's going on here. So this is an amazing vision that Isaiah is given. And once again, it is precisely intended to raise his sights to see that his calling is something that happens before the face of God. Right? It's an interesting comparison of Isaiah and some of his contemporaries like uh, Micah and Ezekiel. And you see them talking about the same thing, fear. The people had become violent. The people were no longer interested in the things of God. So to be a prophet was really a terrifying thing. So there's Isaiah. And he has this calling in the year of King Uzziah's death. And fear and intimidation and anxiety come in like a flood. And what does God do for Isaiah? Graciously, he gives him this vision in order for Isaiah to see that the power of the one who has called him is so great that it cannot begin to uh, find comparison with the fear and the worry and anxiety that he faced. And so this is the first realization for Isaiah. His God is much stronger and much more capable than anything, any challenge or any, any intimidation he would encounter here below. Look at Isaiah's response to this in verse 5. He said, Woe is me, for I am lost. Let me stop there. This, this statement of woe, it's, it's a way of saying in our language... I would now like to crawl into a little hole and die. I mean, that's effectively what Isaiah is saying. It's to invoke upon yourself a curse. Uh, where I come from in Long Island, 
we, we have the Yiddish phrase, oy vey, right? I met Stephanie, we talked about Long Island. This is the way we talk about back home, oy vey. Um, that's, the, that's the Yiddish translation of the Hebrew. Um, Isaiah believes he's going to die, right? And he says as much. He gives the, he gives the reasons. He says, first, um, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He realizes that as a sinner, he is in no position to be in God's presence. He points to his lips, which might sound odd at first. What's with the lips? Um, well, in the Bible, the lips function as an indication of what's happening in here, in your heart. We say, uh, Scripture says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. One day we will give an account for every word that we speak. And so Isaiah is simply calling attention to the fact that he is a sinner. He's guilty before God by referencing his lips. And it's a problem that's not unique to him, for he says, I live among a people of unclean lips. And then the second reason for his woe, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. It was a common belief in ancient times that to look upon God meant that you would die. You could not see God directly. And it had everything to do with what we're, we're seeing here. This great distinction, this great chasm between the holiness of God and the fallenness of cre- uh, creation. Even Moses, the friend of God, right? The one who spoke to God face to face, as it were, is unable to actually look directly into God's face. We see that metaphor of a, of a personal relationship described as face to face. But remember, when Moses was on Mount Sinai and God passed by, what did God do? He put him in the cleft of a rock and he, he shielded Moses from seeing his face because that would have resulted in Moses' death. And it was only after God had passed by declaring the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding, loving kindness, that Moses was permitted to look upon the afterglow of God's presence. So all of that is to say, Isaiah's convinced that he's about to die. This is it. This is the end for him. And there's something valuable here for us. That we need to come to terms with our fallenness, our weakness, There is this sense, especially in America, that if we can just sort of pull ourselves up a little more, we can be adequate for the task, right? We have, you know, motivational speakers, some Christian ones, in fact, who like to say things like, whatever the mind of man can conceive and believe, it can achieve. You know, people like to put them on a plaque and put it in their office and, you know, derive encouragement from it. Now, encouragement's good, but here's the thing. We need to recognize honestly that as fallen people, we are incapable of making ourselves presentable to God. We can't do that, despite our best efforts. And uh, there's a sense in which the tradition in which this church stands, namely Protestantism, is, is predicated on that realization. Martin Luther 
as a young monk, did all that he possibly could in order to garner favor with God. In his day, the the popular image was the lily and the sword. You had an image of Christ, the judge, seated on the throne, and out of one ear, literally, there was a, a lily, and the other was a sword. And as you might imagine, your goal as a man or a woman was to get to the end of your life and to stand before the judge and have him extend the lily, meaning that you were accepted and you would be with him in heaven for eternity. You didn't want the sword, but there was this overriding fear in that day that most people were going to get the sword because after all, it says the way to life is narrow and the way to destruction is broad. So Luther, taking this very seriously, had an enormous burden of guilt that he carried upon his shoulders. And if, if you ever heard uh, the story of Luther, he would address that by confessing his prayers constantly in, in the greatest detail uh, to his confessor and um, to the point that he would totally exhaust the other monks around him in all of his efforts and beating himself and all of the rest. And he did that religiously until the day when he read the book of Romans preparing for a lecture and he looked at Chapter 1 and verse 17 of Romans with new eyes where it talks about the righteousness of God. And Luther had always seen that as the righteousness of God, that perfection of God which condemns him, which simply reveals, much like Isaiah here, that he is a worthless sinner, worthy of condemnation and judgment, and, and incapable of cleansing himself and making himself pure. But Luther read it with new eyes, and he began to see in context that the righteousness of God is the gift of salvation that God gives. This, my friends, is a lesson that all of us need to learn, and we need to learn it not only with reference to how we stand before God. My suspicion is that in this church, most of us have a clear understanding of that fact. That the, that the preaching here from week to week helps us understand, it's made it clear, that all of us fall short of the glory of God. The only way in which we can obtain a living relationship with God is through Christ, whose perfect death and resurrection covers our guilt and makes us acceptable. I'm, I'm confident that's the case. I want to take it a step further and say, what does this idea mean for us as we lift our heads from our pillows every morning and we engage our day. I think it's necessary for us to realize that while we work hard and we apply ourselves and we appropriate as much wisdom as we possibly can, at the end of the day we're still inadequate to live the life of faith, the Christian life. That we're desperate for the Holy Spirit to come and empower us to illumine our minds and our hearts, to lead us in practical ways. And that if we we engage life without that posture and that realization, we're going to have a frustrated life. So like Isaiah, we embrace our weakness. We embrace our brokenness and we say, thank you God that even though I am in this place 
of, of dysfunction and inability so often. You do not leave me here by myself to wither and die in that dysfunction. And that's the good news toward which this passage goes in the following verse. So we read here in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So remember, Isaiah is, I'm envisioning him kind of you know, on the ground. He's invoked a curse on himself. He's ready to die. This is it. I'm not getting out of here alive. And in that very moment, as Isaiah was on the cusp of death, something happens. Now, notice what didn't happen. You didn't have Isaiah pushing himself up from the floor, cleaning himself up in any way, and approaching God. It was none of that. It was instead God himself who takes the initiative by means of the angel carrying the coal with the tongs. And God, by divine initiative, goes directly to Isaiah. And what does God do through the angel? The angel takes that coal and he places it on Isaiah's lips. The very symbol of Isaiah's fallenness and need. He goes to his point of need and he applies redemption to it directly. And having that that burning coal applied to his lips as a vivid illustration of redemption, Isaiah is then liberated to, to confess what God has done for him. He said, this has touched my lips and his guilt is taken away. Uh, it says of Isaiah that his guilt is taken away and his sin is atoned for. When I came to Christ almost 20 years ago, someone read a passage of Scripture to me. And ever since then, it's been the passage of Scripture to which I go when I'm struggling with fear and anxiety and guilt. It's Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. The reason why I think I embrace that verse as an adult coming to Christ later, a little later in life, understanding that left to my own devices, I am a failure. I just cannot... Um, engage relationship with God or life in general on my own. Seeing the, the, the great contrast between the darkness of my own, my own heart and the, the beauty of Christ, I heard that, ver- that, that verse read and it was music to my ears because I realized it's no longer about Chris. It's no longer about my ability to get my act together to the extent that God accepts me. Instead, Chris has had his his identity illuminated. Chris has had 
his guilt and his condemnation eliminated. It's not that we're eliminated. We're, we're still very much the same personalities and the same people. What happens is God takes the guilt and he removes it from us as far as the east is from the west. And then he calls us a child. And he says, I'm going to give you my spirit so that you will be a new creature. You will not have to walk through life left to your own devices. But you will have at your disposal my word, my people to surround you and encourage you, and most of all, my spirit in you who's going to make you more and more like Christ. That's what's happening here for Isaiah. He's come to the end of himself. He's had the coal applied to his lips. And in that act, he's tasted redemption. We recognize through the lens of the New Testament what's going on here. That the coal is simply a foreshadowing of what God would do in his son. That when Jesus came to this earth, he did so for a reason, to die. And we're about to celebrate that in just a couple of weeks, in Good Friday. Jesus hung between heaven and earth as an offering for us, for our sin. That was Jesus' purpose for coming. And after three days in the grave, God, by his power, raised Jesus so that this sacrifice for us, this Lord, is alive. Uh, It's not a dead historical figure that we talk about when we use the word Jesus in church. It is a person, a Savior, who is alive even now and who is reigning over all the earth. Isaiah came to realize this redemption. Even though it hadn't yet happened in history, it would happen. And God's grace extends through the cross to save all people from time immemorial. So this is, this is the gospel, my friends, and this is the place where you and I experience liberation. Liberation from fear and anxiety. But we ought not stop there because there's one more verse in our passage. And it has everything to do with the way you and I live our life. With life and with death. Here we are, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. This is what we sometimes call a, um, the calling of Israel, the calling of uh, Isaiah, pardon me. And it's, but it's like few other callings. Typically, when God calls a man or a woman to service, he goes directly to that person in some sort of vision and explains what he would like that individual to do. We think, for instance, of the burning bush. Um, and uh, examples can be multiplied uh, Gideon and Jephthah and the, prophet and the judges and prophets. In this instance, however, it's different. Instead of God communicating directly to Isaiah, there is instead a question that's put out there. It's hanging in the air. Who will go for us? And then there's silence, presumably. And it is up to Isaiah then to respond to the question by saying, here am I. And what I would like to ask is this. 
What could Isaiah have said in responding to the question, besides, here am I, send me? Having been at the place of death just a moment ago, having tasted of redemption, brought from the, that place to, of death to one of new life, standing before God now as a redeemed person, as a child, what could Isaiah possibly have said in response to this question except, here am I? Because the reason for his existence at this point is the purpose of God. He's died to himself, Galatians 2.20. He no longer exists for his own purpose. Life is completely consecrated to the purpose of God. So Isaiah says, naturally, here am I, Lord. Send me. I'm here. I'm your servant. Is it any different for us? Is it any different? That if you are a follower of Christ who's had this experience of conversion and your old self is done away with and this new life that you live is defined by Christ from top to bottom, Should our response, can our response, be any different from what we see here in Isaiah? The reason we live, the reason we are here in this time and in this place, is to represent the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we will face fears and we will face intimidation of all kinds, And even as our culture in some respects becomes more daunting and grows even more dark, nevertheless, we are in the same place as Isaiah. We can lift our eyes above the horizon and see the same God who lived then is alive now. And the same calling that mobilizes us for witness is likewise alive and well. And so this is, the, this is the privilege that we share as God's people, is to look at our lives and to ask ourselves the question, in what way am I embodying and proclaiming the good news of Jesus? How am I doing that in reality? And I say this to you very honestly and vulnerably. I, I mentioned it to the, to the Sunday school class earlier My work is all about equipping the church for evangelism. But I'll tell you what, there are a lot of days, more than I would care to admit, when I get in my car and I drive to the office and I run through my to-do list and I don't look at my neighbors or coworkers or others and pray for them, pray that they would realize salvation. So we're all in this together. We all have the same privilege to lift our sights up and see God in the midst of our fears and anxieties, and to know that God saves us for a reason. We're set apart to save, that you and I, as the church, the body of Christ, have the privilege of being the means through which God reaches into his creation and saves people for all of eternity. It's not according to our wisdom or our ability, it is according to his grace. And what greater privilege is there than to be used by God
in that way. That's my prayer. And uh, as I think of Cornerstone Church, and as I talk with Paul, and as I pray for you all, please know that that will be my prayer, that each of us would recognize the greatness of God's majesty, and likewise, the calling to which we've been called, and would order our lives in such a way that we would be used by him. Would you please pray with me toward that end? Lord, we do thank you that though we are weak, and very often we, we feel our inadequacies, that by your Spirit you call us, you empower us, and indeed you use us. And so, Lord, would you please do that Give us the grace to carve out a little time and look at our routines of life and help us to imagine them in the light of this passage and to engage them in your power. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Come and feel 